Sunday School. Glad you all are here. We're going to go ahead and get started. All right. Good morning. Welcome to Pinewood Sunday School. If you go ahead and have a seat, we're going to get started. I want to, let's give Wendy a, a hand for getting the donuts. Can we give her a hand? All right. Thank you. And I forgot that she agreed to do that, so I got donuts too, so it's just a free-for-all. So just gorge yourself on donuts this morning. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, that's fine. Um, would anyone volunteer to bring donuts next week? Any, any hands? What's that? Well, I'll probably bring more, you know? I'm just kidding. <laughs> is it, is it, what, you want to bring them? Okay, great. Thank you so much. And if you want, just give us your receipt, and uh, we'll reimburse you for that. Appreciate that. All right, well, let me, um, let me pray for us. with some coffee. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. God, thank you for the amazing story of redemption. Father, we thank you that though your timing seems longer than we would like at times, that you are faithful to keep your promises. And Father, we thank you that you are with us. You're with your people and you're in us. Father, as we look at this book about exile and judgment and all of that, Lord, we pray that you would point us to Jesus and the cross and your love for us and that you would revive us and renew us once again as you do each week with your love for us as you point us to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So... The book of Ezekiel, um, this comes from the Bible Project, and uh, I just want to sort of explain the picture. Up here on the left, you've got the Lord on his war chariot. Um, when I grew up, well, as I was growing up and then got into middle school, I was super into UFOs. I still think they're fascinating, but... I was like obsessed with them. They were like my religion. I was like a new age kid who was super into UFOs, okay? And, the, and I didn't really read the Bible that much, but I sure read Ezekiel, right? The first part. The wheels within the wheels and their faces were like different animals and they moved all together and all, all this confused stuff. I was like, it's totally UFOs, man. But it's, it's the Lord's war uh, chariot. We're gonna see that. But you'll notice up here, what is God's glory doing in Babylon? What is his glory doing in Babylon? Because in Ezekiel, Ezekiel had gone with the first group of people that were kicked out of Jerusalem and taken by the Babylonians. He was in exile. This book uh, is written in exile. And God had not yet destroyed the temple, but he had taken them into exile and so, where was God's special presence known? Where was his glory focused? Where was it? The temple, right? And so, it's crazy that when we first read this book, that we hear of this, this glory of the Lord, the Lord appearing to Ezekiel 
but it was in Babylon. And as we look through this book, you'll see the significance of that in terms of redemptive history, of what this was pointing us to eventually, um, in terms of Jesus being the word who tabernacled among us so that we would end up getting the Holy Spirit tabernacling in us. So, So why Ezekiel? All right, why Ezekiel? Well, there's certain questions that we ask, um, depending on what's going on in your life, sometimes super often, sometimes not. <clears throat> but here's some questions that I think uh, this book addresses uh, as we think about the Christian life and how we wrestle with God. The first is, where is God? <clears throat> so we all know, um, technically, God's omnipresent and all that, and we believe as Christians that he dwells in us. Does that mean that we never ask where God is? Have you ever asked where God is in a certain situation? Like you don't have to just, I don't know. Can anyone? Yeah. Sure. Sure. That's right. Yeah. I'm I'm asking about though when when you felt like God's not with you, just experientially, even though you know in your head God's with me, you know. Has anyone had an experience that they'd be willing to share where they felt like, where is God in all this? Or are there any things that experientially make you ask that question? Even though you know the truth, you know He's with you, but you still some. I mean, is that fair? Is that a, can you relate to that, that we know the Bible, we know it's true, but in our hearts, we, we still feel certain ways that contradict the truth, but that's how we feel right now. Where is God? Wendy. Yes. How can he allow this to happen? Yeah, why doesn't he stop this? Like, where is he? You know, that's what the, Israel's enemies would taunt them. Where's your God? All this stuff's happened. Where's your God? Kate? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Like even a, a kitten video wouldn't make you laugh. You know, at that point, you know, like, <laughs> like, like nothing will do it for me. I can't feel anything right now. Go ahead. Right. And, you know, I think, I 
forget who said this, but like without knowing that you've been forgiven in Christ, every suffering is a double suffering or, you know, without that sense of assurance, because then it feels like not only is this horrible thing happening to me, but God has abandoned me. You know, I mean, we, we can know we're justified, but still feel like God has abandoned us. Um, that, like, if I were here and this was happening, I would do something to fix it. God's not, so where is he? What's happening here? Um, and I'm so thankful that our church is a church where you can express those things, like in life groups and, or, yeah, and things like that, um, and in your friendships, that you don't have to put on a right answer face, you know what I mean? <laughs> that we have the freedom to wrestle with these things. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So what was the 40 years thing? Was that like a joke or I didn't get it? Uh, uh. Oh, yes. I got you. I got you. Sorry. I was like, okay, I, I got you. I was like, wait, what happened in American history 40 years ago? Okay, that's a, that's a, all right. Yeah. All right, so here's some examples. Because Ezekiel gets into this. You'll see, if you read Ezekiel, you'll see that the shepherds of Israel were abusing the people of Israel. And, um, and so this is a picture of a, of a pastor getting arrested for hurting kids. Um, and so... Where is God when religious leaders abuse the people they're supposed to care for? Where is God when people keep inflicting evil on the helpless and nothing happens to them? You know, for my uh, Evangelize Today residency thing, we do these five-question interviews with people. And one of the questions that we ask is, you know, whether they believe in God or not. Like, hypothetically, if, if there is a God and he's good and, and everything, and you could ask him one question and you know that he would answer it, and the answer would be true, what would you ask him? And Bert Boykin, my mentor, who did our evangelism weekend, he goes, well, so David, have you, have you been interviewed yet? I was like, well, no. He goes, why don't you sit down and have Laura interview you? And like, not just like give all the right answers, but kind of wrestle with it, you know? And now she doesn't have to push me hard because I'm pretty transparent. But, um, but on this question, I was thinking about it. And it's like, yeah, it's the same question. Like, bad things happen to kids, you know, child molester stuff, like, and all kinds of other stuff, but like innocent, humanly speaking, right? Innocent people, and God lets that happen, and he doesn't stop it, you know? And I know that he's good, and I, I get that, but like, Lord, help, why, you know? And that is very much on Ezekiel's heart. Where is God when I feel cut off from him? You know, we talked about that. Um, there's verses in the Bible that talk about this, the heavens being like bronze or brass, right? Like, my prayers keep bouncing off the ceiling. Like, the Wi-Fi is totally messed up here. You know, <laughs> it's not working. Like, I don't feel heard at all. And then where can I find God? Right? Because they found God in the temple, in the tent of meeting. You know, in the, in the wilderness, God's visible presence was like in your face. You're a three-year-old and can know that God is with you, right? There's fire right there. There's a pillar of fire. There's a pillar of cloud. Like, he's, of course he's with us. 
They didn't have to ask where God was. Then he'd pick up and move on, and they'd, you know, put the tabernacle back together. And sometimes it'd be for a day. They set up the tabernacle in the morning. I mean, that would be really frustrating. <laughs> but the point, then the cloud goes that evening. Like, oh boy, you know. Okay, all right. But th- it's amazing that God would go with them, right? And so where can I find God? Well, now I've been exiled into Babylon. I am away from his special presence. I'm miles and miles and miles away from God. He has kicked me out from his house. And then he shows up. He comes after me, right? And then how can I be with God when I'm still so sinful? How can I come to the party, you know, the prodigal son? You know, you don't have to drive far to be a prodigal. You can be a prodigal on a weekly basis, you know. I, how can God want me at his table when I'm still so sinful? And then, will I ever have true rest with him, free from anxiety and free from sin, you know? At last, woo! You know the song, uh, James? At last... But someone sing it, you know, like they play it at wedding receptions all the time, right? At last. Okay. The, your homework is to go is to get on Apple Music, whatever, and listen to At Last. It's a great song. Um, it's probably like about the book of Revelation or something. I'm just kidding. All right. So what is God doing? What is his plan? Now, so why Ezekiel? This is absolutely fascinating. And I'm not going to get into all this, but I just want you to know this so you can be thinking about it on your own. Another reason is there are at least 65 direct or indirect quotations of Ezekiel in the New Testament. 65. Like when you think, oh, I'm going to read an Old Testament book to help me understand the New Testament. Ezekiel may not be one of the first ones that pops into your mind, but think about that. 65 in the New Testament. 48 of them in Revelation. All right. Um, Ezekiel has, has been said this, and I agree, is the Old Testament book of Revelation. Uh, I'll show you a chart that you're not, I'm not asking you to read all this, but I just want you to see it in a minute. Um, It helps us understand God's plan carried out in the past and coming in the future to be shared by all those he redeems in Christ. And so I know you may not be able to read this, all right, but I'm just going to read it down real quick and you can Google this. Uh, Compare Ezekiel and Revelation. You can Google it and look it up and look up the verses if you want. But look at all the similarities. You have the throne vision, the book, the four plagues, the slain under the altar, the wrath of God, the seals on the saints' foreheads, the coals from the altar, no more delay, the eating of the book, the measuring of the temple, Jerusalem and Sodom, the cup of wrath, the vine of the land, the great harlot, the lament, they spelled it lamenty, over the city, the scavenger's feast, the first resurrection, the battle with Gog and Magog, the new Jerusalem, the river of life. <laughs> okay? If you want to understand Revelation, look into that. All right? It's really helpful. Okay. Authorship and date. Ezekiel was the son of a priest, and in 597 B.C. at the age of 26, he was among the first group to be exiled from Judea to Babylon. When he turned 30, listen to this, all right? He was the son of a priest, so what was he going to become? A priest, yeah, right? But where was he living when he became of age to be a priest? 
Was he living in Jerusalem? Where was he living? That's right. By a canal in Babylon, or he was, the Lord appeared to him. When he turned 30, instead of being installed as a priest, which would have happened had he not been exiled, that kind of put a wrench in his ordination as a priest, right? Getting kicked out of Israel. God called him to be a prophet. The book covers about a 20-year period, including the predictions of the judgment on Jerusalem, the actual fall of Jerusalem, and the promise of a new temple. All right, so the structure of Ezekiel, I'm not going to read chapters 1 to 24, right? But it starts off with, and we will read some Ezekiel, by the way, in, in, a, in a few minutes. <laughs> um, judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, oracles against foreign nations, the fall of Jerusalem, and then blessing for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. That's why I put it, because that's what, you know, Jesus says that, and that's really what Ezekiel is, God's prophesying through Ezekiel, is, is the salvation of the world through the gospel. All right, so theological themes in, Israel, in Ezekiel. <clears throat> First, the holiness and transcendence of God. Uh, I'd like to, would someone like to read Ezekiel chapter 1, verses t- verse 26 to chapter 2? Verse 1. And if you do, please read it fairly loudly. Ezekiel. To uh, just to two, verse one. Thanks. Um, what does that remind you of? Can you think of a New Testament verse that's similar to that? Where beginning of Revelation. What happens there? Yeah. Yeah. And then he falls on his face as if dead, right? And then Jesus goes, you know, come back up. I've got the keys of Hades and of death. You know, don't be afraid. Um, Notice this language, thinking about the holiness and transcendence of God. Uh, Verse 28 um, says, uh, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance, appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. You see that kind of like layered language? The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's, again, because he, he would have exploded if he saw the full glory of the Lord, right? So the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This holiness, right? And this image um, that's majestic. And then the sovereignty of God. Um, I'm not going to read that big section, 25, 1 to 32, 32. But again, similarly in Isaiah and Jeremiah, God wields the nations. 
God promises that he's going to use the nations to judge Jerusalem. And then he's going to judge the nations for the way they treated Jerusalem. And we talked about this last time, like, okay, wait, God is in control of all things, but but then he punishes the people for doing the thing that he was leading them to do, but it's blameless. He's not sinful. He blamelessly does that. Yes, he does. Do I understand that? No, I don't. (laughs) It's the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and um, it's a mystery, but it's true. God does not uh, sin. He doesn't tempt anyone directly to sin, Um, and so, but he blamelessly wields the nations who become the direct agents of what of his plan to to punish um, Israel, but he's wielding these nations. Um, Okay. And then I put it this way, the unstuckness of God. What might I mean by that? The unstuckness of God. What do you think? Thinking about the temple and his presence in the temple and what we talked about earlier. Okay, think about like other foreign, like foreign gods, false gods of like Babylon and Assyria and things like that. What was the deal with their gods? How mobile were their gods? Joel? Yes. And even the other nations, sometimes they will talk about it that way, about, you know, Yahweh is God of Israel. You know, it's like they're, they're willing to even say, oh, okay, Yahweh's in charge of your country. Right, right. And then over here, where we live, well, they're within control. Or right. Or Asherah, some other god that just sort of assumes that these, these groups are going to be submissive yeah. to God. Yeah. And that if you were away from your place... You weren't near your God anymore, right? And even, even in Israel, it might be tempting to, th- to think that because God is making his special presence known in the temple. And, you know, if you want to be really close to God, if you went behind that veil, you would die if you weren't the high priest who went back there on the Day of Atonement once a year. Like, other than that, you ain't going to be right there with God. He's there. If, if you move back behind this veil... You know, he's, you're sort of with him, but you're not really with him, you know. He's, he's sort of stuck right there. But, but he reminds them that he is not bound to the temple. And his appearance to Ezekiel is also kind of a judgment of the temple. Like his glory is departing. We'll see this later on. He, he's, he, his glory uh, is at the threshold of the, of the temple, of the tabernacle, or the yeah, temple. And then he goes, he takes, he leaves it. He departs. His glory goes to be... Uh, elsewhere. All right, so uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm just going to read these verses. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the 30th year, and we believe that means his 30th year, Ezekiel's 30th year of, of life. That's the way most commentators understand that. In the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Okay. The heavens were open, and then he saw these visions. God appears to him. Um, chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Say this. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, that is the temple, and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out. 
with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. You, you hear that? These cherubim, this war chariot, God goes to the threshold and he, he goes out. All right? He's mobile. <laughs> all right, he's unstuck. He's not like the false gods. And then chapter 11, verse 16 says, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. You hear that? I have been their sanctuary in the countries in which they've gone. I I kicked them out of Israel, but then I went after them and became their sanctuary in the places where they were exiled. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, think about that. It's that father running to the son while he was yet afar off. I mean, you could cry if you think about it long enough. It's so beautiful. And then the patience and justice of God. Ezekiel 4 1 through 8, and then uh, 8, 15 to 18. These are just some examples. Um, Ezekiel 4, 1 through 8. And you, this is the siege of Jerusalem symbolized. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. And put siege, siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle, and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be a state of sea, in a state of siege. And press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side... And place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the, the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. Another translation of the punishment is their iniquity. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side. And bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I shall assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared. And you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. Think about that. He, he was using... He was using Ezekiel as this performance art. We, we see this elsewhere in the book. God commanded him to do things as a prophet that would be literally a visual uh, image of judgment to the people. And he actually made him, we'll get to this as it points to Christ in terms of suffering, the suffering prophet. He made him lie on his side for 390 days and then flip over and 40 days. And later, we at, at one point, you see that he had to, eat food cooked, he said, over human dung. You have to, all your food will be cooked over human waste. And he's like, oh, Lord God, I don't put anything unclean in me. And he's like, okay, I'll let you do animal dung. That was the, that was the exception or the like, I'll give a little and let you eat food cooked over 
animal dung for this long. And you're like, why would God do that? God sent a suffering prophet to warn of judgment. God is patient and he's just. And then chapter 8, verses 15 to 18. It's a long book, and I'm trying to give you samples. I'm, I'm trying not to like overwhelm you with big, long quotes, so, but these are important to get these different themes. So, 8.15 to 18. Then he said to me, have you, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. So pause. The Spirit lifted up Ezekiel and carried him in a vision uh, to Jerusalem and showed him the abominations that the priests and leaders were doing in the temple. The point of this is to show you what God had been patiently enduring for a long time and not judging them yet, warning them, warning them, warning them. And it's like their sin is rising to this fever pitch of rebellion. Remember how the, the Israelites were stuck in Egypt for 430 years because the sins of the Amorites were not yet complete? Humanly speaking, God didn't feel right about sending the Israelites to wipe out the, the Canaanites until their sin had arisen to a certain point. Well, it's been boiling and boiling and boiling for a long time. And these are the, this is the sort of, can you believe they did this? You know, uh, chapter 8, verses 15 to 18, verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. Remember, he never left Babylon. This is like in the spirit. He gives him this vision. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord. Pause. That's like giving a mean gesture to God. Their backs are to God. They're turning, they're insulting God, right? And their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. That's like cheating on your spouse while they're present in your very same bedroom, is what that is. You could not, it's like, it's horrible. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? So it's not just their worshiping idols, it's their violence in the land. Behold, they put to the branch to their nose, therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So, yes, if you call on the Lord in sincerity, you will be saved. But these people had rebelled, and their hearts were hardened, and God had been patient and patient and patient, and now it was time for judgment. So the patience and justice of God. His patience frustrates us, right? How long, O oh Lord, until you punish these people who are oppressing your people? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? That's the Lord's patience. And so when you see the prophets like, when are you going to do something about this? That's because God's patient, right? Like, like and merciful. Jonah, God, wipe him out. Come on, Nineveh, baby. Like, nail him, nail him, nail him. And, you're like, I've got my drink. I'm, want, I'm wanting to see the destruction. Like, no, I'm going to have mercy on them. He does punish Nineveh, but it's later where Nahum prophesies that. So God is so patient, sometimes to our own frustration, but he is just and he will punish. 
And so I'm not going to read the passages about Israel and Judah's and Jerusalem specifically's adultery, about them, you know, the sister Sodom and their whoredom and stuff. But there's some incredibly not real Sunday school-y, not inappropriate because it's by the Holy Spirit, but explicit sexual imagery in the book of Ezekiel that goes at length to describe the adultery of God's people against him. And so read that on your own. I'm I'm not reading all that right now. But it is super intense because God loves his people. He loves his bride. And he's a jealous God. He's a good husband, not in an abusive way, but he's like, I'm yours and you're mine. And he takes that so seriously. All right, and then the grace and mercy of God. Uh, Ezekiel 16, 63, 60 to 63. Would someone like to read that? Ezekiel 16, verse 60 to 63. Don't be shy. Yeah. So it's interesting. You hear his, like, I'm not doing this for you. I mean, he's emotional. He's completely in control of his emotions, but he is emotional. And he's saying, I'm not doing this for you. You know, I'm doing this for my namesake. And you're going to be ashamed when I atone for all your sins. It's like there's, there's such a beauty of, like, he's, I mean, he is appropriately angry at their adultery, but he's promising their forgiveness in this everlasting covenant with them and binding himself like, I'm going to atone for your sins. And you're going to be ashamed, you know. But obviously the story, that's not the end of the story. And then, and you're mine and I love you, you know, the, the beauty. But God is, is far from cold hearted <laughs> and he's far from the Greek, well, whatever, from some philosophical God that's like, you know, he's just sort of abstract. This is his heart, his burning heart for his people. It's beautiful. Thanks for reading that. And then chapter 36, verses 16 to 28. Um, I'll go ahead and read that. Thirty-six, sixteen to 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel, let me make sure I'm reading the right part here. Okay, good. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. 
in that people in that people said of them these are the people of the Lord and yet they had to go out of his land but I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will pour my spirit, I will put my spirit within you And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Isn't that amazing? This promise of the cleansing of the heart. Again, they had to be born again under the old covenant to trust in the Lord. They were dead and they had to be raised. But they did not have the Spirit of God dwelling inside them in the, in the New Covenant way, the post-Pentecost way that we do. Remember, the Spirit is with you, but He will be in you. You know, these things Jesus said but before the Spirit had come, you know. And so this is this promise of the New Covenant, right? It's beautiful. All right. How does this point us to Jesus? Well, before we do that, What's on your mind? What, what's, what's being stirred in your heart right now as you think about these things? Like, man, that's a lot of scripture all at once. You know, besides that, what, what, what's on, what are you thinking about? What's this doing to you as you hear these things? Can you share that with us? Sure, that's legitimate. Yeah, we talked about that with Lamentations last time, right? Jeremiah was there in the midst and saw the destruction. There were Christians on the plains in 9-11, most likely, you know. Um, He allows his faithful people to experience the suffering of a, a judgment that surrounds them. What else? What else? What's on your mind? Don? I've got to tell you what's on my mind when I saw the picture of the hand going up to God. Yes. I was sure you were headed upside down. Because it is not our hands going up to God that saves us, but his hand. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And it's from the goodness of his heart. Yes. Not a heart of stone, not from the result of human effort. Right. That's right. And we, we have a new heart, but our heart is still being renewed, right? That's why we constantly need reminders of his love for us. We, we need to remember the, the love of the God against whom we keep sinning, right? That his love would win us back and win us over and free us from our idols to cling to him and to know him and love him. All right, any other thoughts as we think about these things? What's on your mind? That's right. His affirming his covenant promises, you know, as you said that, what comes to my mind is it's obvious that God doesn't wait for his people to have new hearts, right, and be like, Lord, we love you, we're sorry. He goes, I'm going to atone for your sins and give you a new heart, and then you'll be sorry. <laughs> you know, isn't that amazing? He wasn't waiting for our hearts to be all warm and lovey-dovey to him. <laughs> he just saved us. He just rescued us. All right, Kate? So even our obedience in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my words. You know, that even that is the work ongoing of our, the indwelling Holy Spirit Amen. for us to even want to obey. Amen. That's right. Yeah, um, one pastor, I uh, can't remember his name, Ricky Jones, uh, when he was teaching on Romans 7, said that um, you know that the power of sin has been broken because you feel it. If you were just drifting downstream with sin, you wouldn't feel the struggle. But the struggle that you feel against temptation and the grief you feel when you fall or jump sometimes is because you've been given a new heart. <laughs> it's because God has put his spirit in you and given you the desire to obey him, which is just it's amazing. All right, uh, another hand. Who, someone had their hand up. Okay, say that again. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. What do you feel is the significance of that word versus the other one? What does that, what does that do to you? It is. You know, our selfishness wants us to go one way, and the Spirit goes, no, keep, keep moving towards one another. Keep, you know, let yourself die at the cross, you know, <laughs> take up your cross daily, that kind of thing. All right. Um, anything else? Okay. So, Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man who, as the watchman, Warn the people of coming judgment. I'm not going to read that passage for the sake of time, but God tells Ezekiel, he's a watchman, and like, when I, warn, when I warn them of judgment, if you don't warn them and I judge them, their blood's on you, if, you know, if they don't repent. If you warn them and they don't repent, their blood's on them, but you are called to warn them, and if they repent, woohoo, you know, but you're the watchman. Um, Jesus warned them, uh, we read these verses in the past weeks about judgment coming on Jerusalem. 
Jesus is the suffering prophet who spoke the truth with courage. So Ezekiel's performance art involves suffering. We read that about lying on your side for 390 days. I don't know how all that worked. I don't know how. Anyway, if I think about it long enough, I'm like, whoa, I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't want to be Ezekiel. That's all I know. Uh, he's the suffering prophet who spoke the truth with courage. You know, he was taken into exile. He was exiled. He was kicked out from the presence of the Lord, in a sense, right? How does that point to Jesus? Well, the cross, right? Jesus was exiled from the Father at the cross. And then Jesus is the faithful shepherd and son of David who will save his people and reign forever, bringing his everlasting kingdom on earth. I'm going to read some of these passages to you, and we'll, we'll close with that. Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16. My Bible pages are like extra slippery this morning. I don't know. All right. 34, 11 to 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, so think about faithful shepherd and son of David. He's, he shepherds us and then he's the king who reigns. All right. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Psalm 23, right? Clouds and thick darkness, right? John 10, I'm the good shepherd who lays my life down for his sheep. The, the people who were, the multitude who were, who were, who needed food and, and teaching, you know, it says that they were like sheep without a shepherd in Israel. Like, they're sheep without a shepherd. That's an indictment on the shepherds of Israel, right? So God's like, listen, I'm going to do it. Like, y'all aren't doing it, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to come down there, and I myself am going to shepherd my people. And obviously that's Jesus, Right? And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Lie down in green pastures, right? I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, right? The good shepherd who leaves the 99. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. That means the ones who've been abusing the other sheep or the leaders that were just hoarding the, the goods for themselves and letting the sheep starve. Uh, I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So you have these shepherd promises. And then verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Obviously, this is a prophecy of Jesus, right? Because David was long dead. That Jesus will not only be their shepherd, he will be their one king forever and ever, right? Their good king. And then uh, chapter 37, verses 24 to 28. 
My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. Does this sound familiar? My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. I believe this is ultimately a prophecy of new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. Um, And you can read it on your own for the sake of time. It's 943. Ezekiel chapter 47, um, about 1 through 12 about the new temple. I think it's clearly clear that this new temple is symbolic. It talks about a river coming out of the temple and covering the earth and all that. So um, uh, you can read that on your own. Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12. So um, yeah, so let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the new covenant. Father, we thank you God, for the gift of a desire to walk with you. It's amazing. (laughs) Father, thank you for stirring us up to pray for other people. We're selfish, and it gives us courage that you're going to do something (laughs) when, when you make us want to pray for someone. God, we often confess our failings to you, but God, we thank you for our obedience, not in and of ourselves, and it's not perfect at all, but God, we thank you for the victories that you give us. We thank you for turning situations around because of the work of your spirit. God, we, we just give you all the praise and the glory for any love that we have for you and for other people, God. We worship you and we give you all the praise and we cast our crowns at your feet, King Jesus, and we worship you. We love you, Lord. Please be with us now. In our worship service, fill Pastor Joel with your Holy Spirit, fill him with your joy, fill him with your freedom and your peace, and wrap him in your love as he preaches your word to us. Bless our musicians, help them to have fun, Lord, help them to feel the beauty of the the words that, that we sing and the notes that they play. God, thank you for their service to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to honor you with 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 joyful praise today. And would you meet with us and fill us with your love, God. We desperately need you and we love you because you first loved us. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.